I'm Dr. Vanessa Sinclair, and this is Rendering Unconscious. My guest today is Dr. Isabel Millar, a philosopher and cultural critic. Her work focuses on artificial intelligence, sex, culture, film, and the future. Her book, The Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence, is recently published with the Palgrave Lacan series. She is currently a research fellow at the Center for Critical Thought at the University of Kent. For more, please visit her website, isabelmillar.com. That's I-S-A-B-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R. I just want to take a moment and thank all of the listeners of Rendering Unconscious Podcast. I was recently asked how many listens approximately the podcast has, and so I went to work calculating that, and between the audio podcast stream and the YouTube channel... Uh, We're nearing 250,000 listens um, and views, so that was really overwhelming for me to see. I hadn't realized we were reaching such a huge audience, and um, I just wanted to thank everyone for listening. Um, So thank you, and of course, most of all, thank you to our Patreon patrons for helping make Uh, rendering unconscious podcast and allowing me to set aside time uh, to create this podcast every week. You can support the podcast at the Patreon. It's patreon.com forward slash Vanessa 23 Carl. That's V-A-N-E-S-S-A 23-C-A-R-L. And Rendering Unconscious is also a book, Rendering Unconscious Psychoanalytic Perspectives, Politics, and Poetry, which is available through Chapart Books. Their website is traparty.net. You can find links to all of these sites and more at the website renderingunconscious.org. You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. Um, so, so obviously, it's a it's a book that's based on my PhD thesis, and it is theory, um, philosophy, psychoanalysis. But because it's quite strange, it's almost there is a sort of theory fiction element of it. So it's quite um, a creative, as it were. So I suppose it's um, it may appeal to a sort of wide range of people. It's not just for people who like reading Lacan. So that's my that's my um, plug, and that's as much as I'm going to say about it. But yeah. yeah, but I think that's really great because it's. I love having 
psychoanalysis exploring other topics that are kind of more mm-hmm. widespread so then other audiences can encounter the psychoanalytic theory through what they already enjoy. Yes, exactly. And I think that, you know, psychoanalysis is one of these very misunderstood discourses and obviously within psychoanalysis itself there are a myriad of different approaches um, not just of course clinically but different approaches to using um, psychoanalysis as a mode of thought so within within the realms of psychoanalysis you have everything from philosophers to art theorists to practitioners clinicians um, you know musicians people who draw on psychoanalysis uh to explore other dimensions. And I think that what's really nice is to bring that to people and show them that it's there is much more to be done with it than um, kind of some sort of dry clinical exposition or, or impenetrable theory, which there is a lot of as well. I won't, I won't lie, there is a lot of impenetrable theory, but at the same time, I hoped that it's um, that... Uh, from from that book, I'm kind of working on two new projects. Um, one, a sort of more focused philosophical project, which picks up on one of the concepts that I kind of um, coin, but I don't elaborate further, which is this idea of uh, patai politics. And uh, patai politics develops the notions of biopolitics and necropolitics into another sort of paradigm which um, is derived, the, the, the word patai derives from the, the Latin patio, to suffer. And the idea being that um, now we're no longer just talking about a necropolitical paradigm in which we're talking about um, realms of uh, the walking dead, um, but rather that we're looking at a society in which uh, we are organised according to different modes of suffering or in psychoanalytic terms, enjoyment, because um, they're two sides of the same coin. So this is a, a sort of more of a philosophical development of this concept um, that I'm working on. And then the other, the other project is a, I'm kind of thinking, I suppose, fiction, um, which draws again on, on the sort of this book, but tries to develop some of the ideas in a more theory fiction way that again would be um, amenable to people not from philosophy or, or psychoanalysis. So I don't know, I've been more, more like a chew. I don't know if I'm going <laughs> to pull it off, but that's, that's, the, that's the idea. Well, you have time. That's really exciting to write fiction. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just much more um, freeing, I suppose, because when you write academic work, you're so tied to having to um, be be uh, rigorous and, and true to the theory and get all your fucking sources in. And sometimes you just want to be like, oh, can I just write, please? Can mm-hmm. I just, you know? So that's really the um, impetus there. Yeah, I love it. No, I feel the same way. Um, I've been writing, like, that's why I love the cut-ups and that's why I've been writing a little bit of fiction uh with my husband, Carl, he writes, he's written two novels Mm -hmm. and we're kind of writing this exquisite corpse novel together where we're each taking turns writing a different chapter and we don't know what the other one's going to make the story do until we read it. So it's been really fun. And when we wrote the first 
chapter well he wrote the first chapter and I wrote my first chapter but we wrote them separately without knowing what the other one was going to write about to begin with <laughs> so oh, they're cool. like two totally different stories and you had to like weave them together it's pretty that's fun. so fun yeah that sounds amazing yeah it's pretty fun and it is m- much more freeing it's nice to have mm. both to balance mm. Mm. go back yeah. and forth between the academic and the creative definitely yeah yeah and will you talk a little bit more about biopolitics and necropolitics um, for people that don't know? Yeah, so, um, I mean, biopolitics is a, a, a Foucauldian term and it's, without going into sort of lots of theory now, it, it's the idea of um, the way of managing life. So bio as in bios life and obviously the governance of it. And it refers to the sort of particular um, moment, I suppose, a historical moment where certain scientific discourses joined forces with um, regimes of governance in order to administer life as a as a sort of biological entity. Um, and so this is a, a term that Foucault develops and as you know works out in various different ways, but. Uh, has been appropriated by other thinkers as well, like Agamben and other ways. But then the the um, paradigm of necropolitics was coined by Akil Mbembe, and he sort of tried to use this notion of the administ- the administration of life in order to sort of flip it on its head and look at how, in fact. Um, power was uh, operating in order to administer regimes of death mm. so of course the obvious uh, ones like um, uh, concentration camps or people living under tyranny and uh, Palestine or more generally structural forms of uh, oppression racism um, and sort of ethnic cleansing so this idea that actually you orchestrated uh, sort of political, um paradigms which had as their baseline ways of making people live as if they were dead mm. and uh, you know that this is obviously i think becoming more of a, a familiar idea to people now as they start to come to terms with the the sort of bringing to light all of the ways in which um certain people in society have to live under danger of death all the time Mm-hmm. obviously in america we can see that so now the the, the idea of partial politics was for me it came up because um in the book i'm talking about uh obviously sex and i'm talking about um the way that uh sexuality is a part of um the governance of bodies and of course sex is uh for psychoanalysis, a very complicated and fundamental term, and it's one that is uh, essential to the, the the human subject. So, any any conversation about sex inherently uh, uh, entails this the concept of enjoyment, or jouissance in psychoanalytic terms, and this concept is a is an ambivalent term which um, is relates to the way in which we all enjoy or or enjoy our own suffering and that can be both pleasurable and painful but it's really the way that we deal with our being in the world and 
the idea then of, of apartheid politics is really trying to analyse the ways in which this mode of enjoyment is um, administered and becomes a mode of governance um, through, you know, capitalism, obviously, but um, through the ways that we are forced to enjoy mm -hmm. and the way that we're forced to enjoy, obviously, um, commodities, but also forced to enjoy sex and forced to enjoy ourselves, even if we think that we we um, want to do something, we don't even get the chance to decide whether it's something that we want to do because we're already told, we're always told what we want to do before we get the chance to develop our own desires. And that's as much as um, with consumer culture as it is with, uh, with romantic relationships or sexual relationships. And, you know, especially now because people are becoming very aware of how we need to think about the sexual relationship and the relationship between men and women and what are men and what are women and what happens when, you know, sex has to be always a question of explicit consent when you have to say, do you want to have sex with me? Yes, I want to have sex with you. And if you don't do that, then apparently it's, you know, it's, it, it's, it's impossible to decide who, um, who is enjoying something and who's not enjoying something. So there's so many kind of confusions around uh, what what enjoyment means and what suffering means because they kind of can flip over on each other. And um, outside of the kind of very um, well-trodden past of, of sort of the whole Me Too context of, you know, um, don't, just because a woman says she wants to do something, it doesn't mean she necessarily wants to do something and coercion, et cetera, et cetera, which are very sort of well-established um, notions now, people com coming finally coming to terms with uh, this. But um, there's something more important uh, to think about, which is the idea that fundamentally the sexual relation is, is never contractual, can never simply be contractual or discursive because... There are always um, elements of self uh, self harm, as it were, that will enter into any kind of sexual relationship. So that doesn't mean to say, oh well, therefore uh, you can't ever decide whether when something is um, exploitative or not. No, of course you can. But what you have to always do is take into account the fact that our desires and our fantasies are always complicated, and they're always counter um they're always count con probably contrary to what we think we want um because that's what psychoanalysis teaches you you know that you you don't know what you want all the time and you can't know what you want all the time but that's um that's not you're not to be blamed for that so yeah so that's that's the kind of thing that i'm work i'm working on and thinking about at the moment in terms of the the, the partai politics um idea I love it. Hey, that's fantastic. Thank you. You've been really busy. So since we last talked, you've graduated, you have your doctorate now, Dr. Yeah. Millar. <laughs> Had this book come out. You've done so many different events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I, I've, I've, I've been really busy, but it sort of feels a bit strange because this all happened during lockdown. Mm -hmm. So most of the things that I'm, I'm doing like everybody else you know we're stuck in our houses behind a screen so it feels like you're really busy but there's almost no there's no um 
kind of distinction between what 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 you're doing because it's all <laughs> all takes place in the same sort of six foot square spa- space um but yeah I, I mean I, I'm very sort of I feel fortunate to have been able to finish my doctorate um during during lockdown because I know how hard it is for people now starting out or in the middle and having to try and get through what is a really 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 difficult thing and very soul-destroying thing because you're sort of isolated on your own and which is what lockdown is anyway but if you're used to being outside and then suddenly you're you're um you're kind of your extended period of study or or work is then enforced on you by having to be at at, inside reading books it can be really really difficult so I feel for lots of people who are now trying to get their their PhD finished yeah I can't imagine being in school right now Mm. um, and having to study and like focus and concentrate and Mm. take exams and things like that with all of this going on I I hope that other professors are like being very understanding and lenient towards students in general. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, we have we have the the lucky side of it anyway. I mean, you know, don't, don't even get me started about this awful country and how they treat um, the pe- the real people who are suffering in this. You know, all the frontline workers and stuff because it'll make me too angry and I'll go and do something I'll regret. <laughs> No, yeah, no, it's it's been atrocious, and hopefully, um, I would I would love to have hope that it will make things change, but unfortunately, yeah. I'm kind of pessimistic in that regard as far as humans actually changing what they're yeah. doing, especially yeah, yeah. with everybody just like rushing back to like quote unquote go back to normal and like oh we have our vaccines now we can all go out and it's like mm. yeah <laughs> really no, no. yeah everyone sort of seems to be thinking that. We're, we're in the safe zone now, but then you look at India and it's like, well, okay, yeah, let's not, this is not a joke. Um, and people still don't take it seriously. So you sort of do despair um, of the idiocy of people. Uh, uh, did you see on Twitter the, the, um, the march that we had of people protesting lockdown um, and wearing stars of David oh my God. because they felt that they were being oppressed. And some women talking about how this was a genocide, you know. These de- <laughs> wow. I mean, you just sort of think, what is the point? Because people are so idiotic that where do you even start? You know, this is what the baseline of, of, of the average person in this country thinks, that, that it's, it's a genocide, that they're in lockdown. Do you know what genocide means? Have you, do you actually understand the word? But... Yeah, so it's best, I suppose, don't don't even look on Twitter, quite frankly. Yeah, Twitter always Twitter always like blocks me because I when I get excited about like something someone's posting and then I like to see who they like like and then I like like all these people or whatever friend them or whatever it's called follow them. Um, oh, yeah. And then Twitter's like you follow too many people and it doesn't let me do anything for three days. Oh, seriously, <laughs> all the time. So I'm always like, on Twitter ban or Twitter. Time out. Oh my god, that's really that's so funny. <laughs> yeah, just because well, I get excited about like seeing new people and new things. You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you're you're brilliant on social media because you just like you're you're like so on the ball with everything and you always like retweet and like things and and I like I really want to be like that, but then I'm like I, I so I get so neurotic about 
oh, but then if I like this person and I haven't liked that person, and if people think that I don't like them and then they'll think that I'm being horrible. <laughs> so I think, well, okay, just minim- min- minimize it and then you don't have to like worry about it. It's, it's so anxiety provoking when, you know, you have all these colleagues doing amazing things and you want to support everybody and then you, you're like, okay, but if I start retweeting everyone, then... It's um, end- it's endless, endless retweeting endless. yeah it's endless it's endless and then you've got the instagram and the, i i don't i don't do tiktok but my my nephew and niece are trying to persuade me to get onto tiktok i'm like look man come on i think i have to just <laughs> i officially i'm too old for that but apparently there's lots of not teenage people on tiktok um do you do tiktok no i'm not on the tiktok um I almost said yet because I just saw I just saw Kyle McLaughlin um so my mom my mom when she was in college she worked for this man who became a travel agent Hmm. Don Gruber and his daughter who my mom used to like babysit when she was in college (coughs) is married to Kyle McLaughlin all right and so we just love Kyle McLaughlin even more than we already loved him and uh because now he's like a family friend. <laughs> yeah. But I just saw Kyle McLaughlin was on um, Stephen Colbert and that he has a TikTok and then he like acts out different scenes of his characters. Really, and so now I might get a t- TikTok. Yeah, it is worth it for some. It is funny. I will say that it's funny. But but it's just, there's too many distractions. Like I, I, I barely have time to get through Instagram and Twitter and Facebook. And then now I'm going to add TikTok. It's just... <laughs> No, it's too much. I have an 8 p.m. cutoff time now where, like, I'm not allowed to look at my phone or, or a computer oh, that's after good. 8 p.m. Yeah. Because I have a hard time falling asleep if I, I need, like, a period where I don't have that and I can just read and do things mm-hmm. around the house before I go to bed. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, yeah. I'll have my phone in bed looking at it, you know, until whenever. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's not good. And what about, I was also thinking with this relation that you're talking about with the body, like we seem mm. we're doing all these things, but really we've, I've, I've not left my apartment in over a year, like yeah. except for to literally go to the grocery store, the post office and like go on a daily walk, like up and down the street, like mm-hmm. <laughs> that I live on. Um, yeah. So then like, we, like seems like we're doing all of this in our minds and online, mm. but really we're just like in this like box and yeah, yeah, yeah. that relationship between like the body and the mind and the technology that almost seems some, something you could use in your work somehow yeah well it's so remote isn't it now to you just we're so divorced from from our bodies actually somebody a friend just messaged me um this morning and who had, had read I think they, they, they'd read my book and said they were like oh because they're not they're not from a theory background but they they were very interested and said that but what they wanted to think about was um, the sort of element of fantasy and ethics and sexual um, infidelity, right? Which is which is not, you know, because the the book is obviously very sort of abstract. I don't actually talk about you know relationships or or sex in that way, but but the idea of um, what's happening when you're when you're having a a sexual liaison with somebody through technology and it's not your partner etc cetera, etc cetera. now to me like that's 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 what um is always happening with 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 uh with sexual relationships which is that they are always a step removed from the person that you're with anyway because you're you're always going through fantasy 
But now with technology that we probably are even less going to be um, actually in the same room with somebody or being able to have casual liaisons, it, of course it will change the way that people are intimate with each other. But I don't know if that's any sort of fundamentally different from what human beings have always done. Like the idea that, um, that's, oh, well, you, if you're doing cyber sex, it's, um, it's different somehow from any other form of infidelity or any, because it's a new, I don't think it's new. I don't think there's anything new about it. I think it's just what, what people always did and have done and we'll just be doing it more but I think what's more kind of significant in, in that sense of not being in the room with somebody is to do with the way that we're relating to our bodies and the way that we're relating to the sort of abjectness of the body and all the kind of disgust around um, germs. And, you know, because it used to be people being worried about sexually transmitted diseases or pregnancy or whatever, but now it's, oh, will I get a deadly disease and die? <laughs> from from being from having an affair or from having so i'll be i'm I'm sure there are lots of people working on that and and researching it but it it will be interesting to see how um this kind of thing develops and actually the the novel that i am sort of working on as well is it's about um the question of prostitution in a in a world where you're not allowed to um, be in contact with other human bodies and how that will develop in the future when only rich people for example will be able to be um, have the luxury of being vaccinated for example what does that mean for people who work in, in the sex industry you know what 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 will what will it what will happen for them because it may very well be that it works in their favor they finally get like proper protections from the law because they are now suddenly a key worker mm. you know you're you're a key worker because rich people are not going to stop wanting to use um prostitution so i think that there's so many amazingly interesting developments that will come out of this prohibition of the of bodily um contact um, super interesting yeah yeah and i was thinking too when you mentioned earlier like all these questions in society like what makes a man what makes a woman and mm. also now it's like what makes a human and like mm. what level when it gets to a certain level with like artificial human companions and these sex bots and all of that like you know people are advocating that like they should have rights and this this one Sophia that has a passport in Saudi Arabia and that sort of thing like when is that line going to be blurred as well mm-hmm. yeah well this is this is kind of like part one of the things that I've encountered over the course of my research that often people have put me in a box of talking about, for example, um, uh, the, the, the question of robot ethics, which I'm really not, which I really don't engage with. And um, the, to me, the question of AI is much more one to do with, uh, the relationship between thought and um, enjoyment and the relationship between the idea of how we imagine what other forms of um, consciousness would be. 
um, when it comes to this, the kind of particular technologies that we have now in order to replicate this sort of idea of a, of a robotic person is clearly not, um, is clearly not anything near an artificial intelligence in the, in the, in the proper strong sense of AI. Um, it kind of gets into this realm of the question around ethics and um, prostitution and, uh, you know, the sort of, to me, questions that are much more relating to social science, which is not really my, my area. What I have found interesting is that there are lots of people in the sort of transhumanist camps who genuinely... Uh, think that these clearly not sentient, not in any way um, real AI creatures, i.e. sort of this very perfunctory sex robots, are are kind of on the way to needing to have protections from through the law or be able to, or be able to be something that you can um, marry or consider a, a legitimate partner. And this whole discourse has got mixed up together with a very pernicious and, um, in my view, uh, sinister idea around the, 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 the idea that people creating sex robots are doing a public service for the lonely or the disenfranchised and, you know, actually we, we should be applauding them for uh, helping out lonely old men, as it were. And I've been in the room with people having those types of conversations because I've been invited to, to a talk because people have thought that that's what, I, what I'm, I'm uh, researching. And I'm not, but it's interesting because these people are, are taken seriously. You know, it, it, they're not kooks, even though to me or you, we might think, bloody hell, what, what a loon. They are considered to be serious, you know, academics and people who should be consulted in terms of uh, the ethics of technology and AI. And I find that really actually one of the most astounding and important things about what I'm interested in is that there there are not enough serious people talking about AI and talking about its relationship to um, human power and human um, exploitation of other humans. Um, All they're talking about most of the time is... uh, sort of very masculine um awful fantasies about this amazing moment when the human will transcend its limits and become all powerful and all knowing and you know all these kind of discourses on the singularity and the Kurtzweilian idea of this potent human who's going to uh, achieve greatness is very pernicious and it's it's but it's not just pernicious it's kind of it's kind of very unthought out it's not there's no nuance and there's no um proper sort of philosophical engagement with where ai is going and what are the sort of ramifications of the financial and capitalist interests around all of the developments that are happening so when you get somebody in the room who's saying oh well i i i predict in 50 years time we'll be able to marry a robot and that's to me is a very good development because uh you know lots of lonely people will be will be relieved and that's the limit of the conversation you think well we're just fucked aren't we really because it just it's just a continuation of of giving a certain type of voice um of authority and of course that type of voice is usually uh, middle-aged white men 
So, yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of one of my concerns and annoyances about the whole discourse on AI, which is what I sort of touch on in the book. Yeah, no, it seems like when you describe it that way, that this is just like an extension of colonialism. Like, yeah. it's just like the same kind of group of men that are now controlling like the tech industry and mm-hmm. it's all over the world and it's such a few there's so few companies that control like how the searches work and what the algorithms are looking for and mm-hmm. how the whole thing functions and it's completely mm-hmm. global at this time um yeah. and yeah it's pretty disturbing i mean even just moving here to sweden um, you know, I, I was really surprised at like how similar everything was and everybody's still looking at the same uh, things online and everybody mm-hmm. speaks English and, um, you know, it's just the same. They, they watch the same movies. It's just like this kind of monoculture of like yeah. uh, IT culture and like Hollywood movies. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, it's sinister. Well, on that note, (laughs) I'm like, oh, what's going to (laughs) happen? Oh, God. I actually met someone, uh, I won't say where, but I've met someone actually when I was just like at a bar somewhere out of town. Mm. um, And like I was visiting a friend and they were at work. So I was just like hanging at a bar, having lunch by myself. And mm. the guy sitting next to me was this a cute old guy in his, like, little suit and a bow tie and stuff. And we were, like, chatting. Mm. And he had a whole, like, family of artificial companions. It turned out he was like, want to come see them? <laughs> oh, my God. Really? And it had, like, yeah, like, little ones and adult ones. And, yeah, he, like, had a whole family of them. So that was interesting. Oh, that's, yeah, that's quite disturbing. <laughs> interesting. <laughs> I hadn't encountered that before <laughs> or since. <laughs> well, I just got um, uh, Ishiguro's new book, Clara and the Sun. Um, I haven't, I haven't read it. I've just started it, but uh, he's he's written a book about art, the artificial friends. So um, these sort of artificial AIs that live in a in a department store. Um, but I don't know. I haven't haven't read it. Yet, but I saw him on um, uh, Imagine with Alan Yentob being interviewed, and and it's always interesting to see um, the how in literature and in theory sort of ideas are being um, broached from different perspectives. You know, so I'm 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 really looking forward to seeing how he conceives of this the idea of the artificial friend because you know of course it's his um take is 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 a more about what what it says about humans um which is the same as you know my take as well <laughs> um but 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 of course we're, we're we're going about it in completely different ways but i'll be very interested to see how um the similar threads uh merge from literature and theory on these questions and i think like you know lots of people are going to be coming to to thinking about these kind of things as well um yeah i hope so it's really important mm, yeah and what about the blade runner book you contributed to that as well yeah yeah i mean that 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 was a an essay from a couple of years ago which is developed further in in the book um but 
it was it was a couple of years ago and now I'm just going to start moaning about publishing because they take so long <laughs> that um you, you but from the time you write something to the time it actually gets published is so long you you think oh well can't even remember I I wrote that and that's not that's not even relevant anymore but um no it's actually a really interesting I shouldn't do it down it's a very interesting collection of essays on Blade Runner um uh, featuring Todd McGowan, um, Zizek's in there, uh, Sheila Kunkel, Alex Bovey, Callum Neal, I'm going to forget somebody, Daniel Bristow, uh, Matthew Flissfield, lots of brilliant people. So um, if people can get a hold of it, they should. Ah, I happen to know that Todd McGowan uploaded it onto Academia, <laughs> so you can get it for free. And I suggest you, you do because... Um, Palgrove are notoriously, and I'm going to say this, I don't care, um, uh, money grabbing. And they are basically making people pay lots of money for these books. And we as authors don't make any money, but yet the books are um, priced extremely prohibitively high so that people can't actually buy our books when we write them. But yet we and we don't get any reward for it. So who's making the money? Well, Palgrave are make, making the money, but we have to just put up with it because apparently this is what you have to do in academic publishing. You know, we're, we're, they're supposedly doing us a favour by publishing our books and making, you know, lots and lots of money out of our work. And, you know, we're, we're stuck in a situation as authors because we obviously want our work to be read and we want people to buy our books, but what how 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 do we how do we get it to people without just making everything open access which in itself is has its own drawbacks and I think and that's something I actually really feel strongly about that um we need to as writers and academics um sort of have some sort of union <laughs> to protect us from this kind of thing because we are always working for free and we're always writing for free and there are people making huge amounts of money out of our labour. Um, so what should we do about it? I think we need to start talking about it for a start because nobody ever speaks about it. It's sort of like a, a taboo, isn't it? You don't want to seem like the one who's complaining. Um, but it's outrageous, frankly. No, I totally agree. And I think a new system really does need to be set up because even the whole journal system, it's like, you know, they get edited by people, the people who edit the journal and curate the journal, they do it for free. They mm -hmm. invite guest editors mm -hmm. who are working for free. The articles are peer reviewed yeah. for free. And then like, for example, I wanted to reference one of my friend's papers in my last book. And I was like, well, I want to support them. And then I like mm -hmm. went to download their article. It was like $45 oh, and I could so. only look at it for like 24 hours or something. Yeah. That's so I was absurd. like, what kind of racket is this? You know? It's a racket. It's a total racket. <laughs> it's like they stand at the, their gatekeepers. All of these people work in these publishing industries. They're gatekeepers to our work, and yet we can't access it. It's just, and, and, and I think it's becoming more and more suspect now. I don't, I hope that it's, they're, they're going to be less able to, to get away with it because it's so stark. And also, like, even, you know, of course, we always get asked to do, uh, peer reviews for example that's an another sort of form of work that academics do that we're not paid for 
Um, but generally speaking, when you're doing a peer review, it, it's probably because a friend has asked you and, you know, that's fine. Like that's it's part of it. And it's all, you know, camaraderie. But uh, recently I had a request from Palgrave who've decided to put, put, set up an account for me as a peer reviewer, given that I'm one of their authors and now asking me to, to work for them as a peer reviewer for free. And I don't know how this is allowed. How is it, uh, you know, legitimate that they can just come and approach you and say, oh, you do, I know that you're, this is your area of expertise, now work for me for free. Why? Why should I? Yeah, and then, but you feel like, well, I have to, because if I don't, then I, you know, because everybody, the, the unsaid thing is that we all read what's happening in each other's field and then we comment on it and that's part of the academic process. But obviously if for people who don't work in universities, because there are no university jobs, we don't have salaries, we rely on freelance work or whatever why 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 how can it be a thing that we're constantly asked to work for free for publishing houses so yeah this is another strange development that I see happening and I think that my message to young people doing their PhDs is don't put up with it because if you just put up with it now we're, we're going to be fucked like people have to start saying no and not feel that pressured because if they don't do this they don't have that on their cv it doesn't actually matter whether you have this stuff on your cv anyway like um this this kind of stuff you know however many journals you've peer reviewed is not going to make a difference but i think people are just a little bit um everyone's insecure about it aren't they because everyone feels like they need to have done a million trillion things otherwise they can't get to the next stage no, exactly. And I've, I've stopped saying yes to those things as well, because I just I have too many other things to do. And mm. like you said, a lot of times it's like people I really like asking mm. me to do it, to contribute to a journal or guest editor journal or peer review a paper. Mm. And so I want to say yes and I want to help them. Mm. But I just had to start saying no. Because mm. I'm like, it takes so much time. I don't mm. want to do it half-assed. And mm. I, just like, I just don't have the bandwidth for it anymore. And I'm not an academic and I don't have a tenure job. So like, let, I'll let those people do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'll do that. I'll do other things like that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's the thing. It's like, it's such a weird balance because on the one hand, you know, we do so much stuff um, for out of the love of it and because we want to and, and it's friends and stuff. But then like, then people start to think, oh, well, okay, well, that's just what you do. So um, we could just ask you to just pile on, pile on, pile on. But um and also your point that there's companies that are making a lot of money off of this. Well, exactly. It's a like, lot. It's like, it, 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 I wouldn't mind if it was actually helping a person out. But right. it's, no, you're literally making thousands and thousands out of this. And, you know, I just, I, I marvel at, currently my book is, is, is 80 pounds. Um, and you just think, and I know that it already sold out on Amazon before even, came out properly right so therefore they're definitely reaching their targets and people are buying it well who's gets the money i don't get the money like and then and then i had to argue with them about like how you know why are you pricing it like this? oh this is just how we have we have to do it to cover our costs as if you know spring of nature the enormous publishing house was somehow trying to scrabble around to find a few shekels down the back of the sofa like come on <laughs> um 
Yeah, and also I've noticed because my husband runs a publishing company, so he knows how to t- tell these things. Other people might too, but I don't. But it, um, a lot of the books that I've ordered recently that are academic books, he looks through them and he's like, this is a print-on-demand book. So they're printing them as they're being ordered. It's not even like they have to warehouse really? them a lot of the wow. time anymore. So there's yeah. no there's no reason that it should be that much. Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, you can tell I've been locked up being I mean, it's like a mo- moany old cow. Like, all of us have been locked up, so <laughs> we're all in the same boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is there anything else you're doing or have coming up or anything that you want to talk about? Um, well, I've got sort of various different podcasts and events coming up. So I'm going to be doing um, Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour uh, in May. And I'll be doing Schizotopia as well podcast and i'm doing conference at warwick in may as well uh i'll be on a panel with alfie baum which will be good fun um then there are then then a a a talk for the dormant office in july um on virtual enjoyment the virtual enjoyment series and then i'm teaching a course for the global center for advanced studies did i get that right actually um, in July, which is like a, a four-week course, I mean a Saturday, four Saturdays, starting July the 24th, and you can sign up for that on GCAS, which is on uh, a course on psychoanalysis and AI. Um, so yeah, so lots of lots of things happening. But I I, uh, I hope that soon I'll be able to go outside and and play with the other children. <laughs> stuck in my bedroom like Rapunzel. Um, yeah, so so hopefully the world will be a more exciting place soon. Yeah, it's been pretty exciting, but hopefully it'll be yeah, more pleasurable forms of excitement. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Less suffering forms of yeah, enjoyment. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and that's good. That's that class on uh AI and psychoanalysis sounds great. And that starts on July twenty fourth. Yeah. I might have to look into taking that. And um and then you're doing you're going to be part of the morbid anatomy series that I'm uh, curating. So I'll just make yes. sure that your talk is like early in July so that you yeah. don't have too much. That would be that would be great. Time. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to that. Nice. Well, fun. Well, I mean, no. Uh, uh, what was I gonna? I was gonna ask. Well, I was just gonna moan again about another publisher. <laughs> but um, I don't know. Like I I um. So I'm, so this other book that I'm sort of working on as well, it's um, it's sort of at, it's now I'm with a currently with a um, publishing house, and um, I'm going to see whether they're the the people I want to go with. But um, I suppose my uh, my parting shot is that I have this horrible sneaking feeling that for as much as um, we talk about sort of left-wing solidarity and supporting each other and, um, you know, right, it, right theory about how to make the world a better place and how to smash capitalism, patriarchy, et cetera, et cetera, I've seen a very worrying sort of trend, um, which is in on the ground... Um, very exploitative towards the people who are writing these kind of things. Um, and it seems a bit paradoxical that we're, we're kind of 
on the one hand, theorizing our way towards this wonderful utopia, yet are not able in practical terms on everyday level to to treat each other with respect and um, and kindness. And uh, this is just a thing that I've noticed in various through various channels in publishing, etc. And I suppose I just want to like, because I don't want to like um, bring people like name and shame, but I just feel like because I never say it, and I think you know what this this is not this is an unspoken thing that I know a lot of people are experiencing, and I know a lot of people are getting pissed off about, and yet no one feels like they can talk about it. But I just want to like say people should talk about it, and we shouldn't put up with it, and we should say you know when we're when we're not being treated fairly and how and, and by whom <laughs> so yeah i wholeheartedly agree and i'm glad yeah. that you're speaking about it yeah and i think in general like you mentioned before too like the pandemic has shown like the essential workers and how essential workers are traditionally treated and they're the people on the front lines they're the people that have been having to work through this whole pandemic and a lot of yeah. people a lot of them have died yeah. um one of my friends died because he was uh like a cashier at a, a convenience store like a 711 cashier and he had to go to work every every day and he ended up getting sick and dying oh, um yeah and and you know this is happening all over so I think in that regard as well like you know all of the, these essential workers that have these minimum wage jobs in the states and elsewhere mm. you know, need a better quality of life from the ground up like yeah. they need a fair wage and they need health insurance and that's what happened to him as well he didn't have health insurance and he went to the hospital when he was getting sick and he tested positive and they told him they were so full that he should come back if he really couldn't breathe because he was only oh 45 God. and in pretty good uh health otherwise so they were mm. like well if you really have trouble breathing then come back and then he just went to sleep and died oh that's horrible that's yeah so, so people should not be being turned away people should no. have health that care you know and yeah. basic just like basic humanity but the humane humans are not humane unfortunately no. well look at boris johnson i mean well now they're all the, the 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 pit of vipers is eating itself alive so hopefully he'll get what's coming to him but at the end of the day there's another one behind him isn't there it's like what's it's not going to change just because he he goes it's just complete corruption and people filling their pockets and kicking sand in the face of the poor you know it's so victorian this country it's really really shocking and 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 depressing you know um so so i just hope that we can at least amongst ourselves at least with the people that we interact with that we can sort of have still continue to have some sense of solidarity and rather than all this descending into lots of um, infighting, you know, of uh, who's more righteous than whom and, and all of that stuff. Because it's very, it's really difficult. It's really difficult out there for, for so many people. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm just, I feel very lucky that I don't have to be, you know, in a, in a hospital or cleaning a um, somebody's office or something or doing, 
doing something that's putting putting myself at risk and and the people are doing that every day and they're just ignored and it's it's really really sad yeah it's shameful well good should we leave it on that note yes on that happy (laughs) note (laughs) we're so uplifting and positive (laughs) no we 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 are we are we're we're deeply positive people you know (laughs) i think i think we're pretty realist though this is a difficult time and these are real issues and this is like pervasive abuses and injustices on all different levels of society and it pervades it's pervasive everywhere and that's the whole yeah. point it's just like you said you can't you replace one person another person will come in that's why there needs to be like structural change from the yeah. ground up yeah well we can whistle for that but um <laughs> we'll see <laughs> we can do it we can do it as individuals in our own lives at least mm-hmm. make sure we treat the people around us yeah um the best we can exactly exactly Right on. Thank you for listening to Rendering Unconscious. You've just heard a discussion with philosopher and cultural critic, Dr. Isabel Millar. Be sure to check out her book, the Psychoanalysis of Artificial Intelligence from the Palgrave Lacan series and her website, isabelmillar.com. That's I-S-A-B-E-L-M-I-L-L-A-R.com. You can find links to her work in the text accompanying this episode as well as at renderingunconscious.org You can also visit my website, drvanessasinclair.net. And you can support the podcast at our Patreon, p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash v-a-n-e-s-s-a two three c-a-r-l. Your support is greatly appreciated. Every episode of Rendering Unconscious podcast ends with a song, usually created by me, someone I collaborate with, um, my husband Carl, someone he's collaborated with, or some compilations we've put together through his label, Highbrow Low Life. Um, you can check out the Bandcamp, highbrowlowlife.bandcamp.com. And this next track is called a gown made from flesh and it's from an album called follow my voice which is a collaboration i did with swedish sonic artist per olund enjoy A descent to the roots of worlds by crossing experience.
by which we create and shape our world. The scales of Mott observed the traveler, an extra human being, a gown made from the flesh, a gown made from the flesh, the flesh, as heart, floss, leather cording, each thing that beautiful, dressed all in blue, a gown made from the flesh, a gown made from the flesh. How can we interface to our subjective experience and the metabolic behavior seems rather sophisticated. Why is the interaction of a simple entity with a, but rather in a sense, constructing entities of behaviors. The effect will occur, the of the flesh, and through which one touches the visible and the invisible. A gown made from the flesh.